It is so fun to uh, see you all, to recognize a lot of people, but to see a lot of people that I don't recognize, which is a great thing because that means you're growing and there are new people coming in. So that is, that is pretty exciting. I have to say, whenever I think of Chris and whenever I think of you guys, uh, I thank my God on every remembrance of you. The, the love that you have for one another is so thick you can cut it with a knife. It's amazing. It is it is recognizable, it is tangible, and it comes out every time I see you greet each other and welcome each other. Um, it, that just, of everything else that goes on in a church, that's what excites me more than anything else, is when there's a genuine love uh, between the brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Connie and I uh, are on an adventure in life that began in 2013, um, and it's amazing, God is very interested in his children not getting comfortable. Have you figured that out? I mean, he is, he is committed to our discomfort. Because in our discomfort, we have to trust him. And as we trust him, our character becomes more conformed to the image of Christ. So if you're one of those Christians who keep expecting to reach the peak of the hill and then all of life is just this downhill skiing trip from there, uh, you need to change your expectations, okay? Because uh, Jesus said it's a narrow gate and a rough road, but it's a great road. In fact, it's, it's a road I would not trade for anything else in the world. Connie is back there. Everybody look back. Uh, she adds beauty to the ugliness of the Larson family. So, you know, she, she, uh, pe- people look at me and they go, oh, and they look at her and they go, oh, okay. So between the two of us, there's a, oh, okay. So that, you know, that's the way it works. But uh, since 2013, we have been uh, serving God mostly in other places of the world. At first, we were going to China. We were spending about six months of our year in China training missionaries to Uh, go to various parts of the world and um, share the gospel with people between uh, China and Israel. That movement is called Back to Jerusalem. The Chinese church has a a passion to send 100,000 missionaries to these nations uh, to finish the work of evangelism. That's primarily the 1040 window where people uh, haven't been reached with the gospel. A couple of years ago, a new president came into China, and this man is increasingly being compared with Mao Zedong, uh, which is not a good thing. Um, Their most recent move was to install um, facial recognition cameras in every church building that they can find so that they know exactly who is uh, going to church and who isn't. They have been trying to find out the leadership of the underground church for years uh, have been failing in that. And so uh, the, that's why we are no longer able to minister in China because where we go, we kind of shine a spotlight on the underground church. So we're actually, Wednesday, we're going to Hong Kong, which will be a blessing to be there. And we'll be taking short-term trips into China, kind of three-day blitzkrieg attacks, and we'll do some training uh, specifically on marriage and family for the pastors and the leaders, because that is a tremendous need in China. And then we'll be going up to an area uh, called Shaman, where there is a huge university and there's a great ministry going on among the students there. Uh, So far, two churches have been planning. They're planting a third church, so there's some great things that are happening there. Uh, But anyway, what's happened with us is our ministry has expanded to uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, We're we're hoping to set up a pattern where we go three times a year to train pastors and to let you know what's going on there. Just two weeks ago, the Buddhists, it's 80% Buddhist country, decided that they would go to every church and physically block the entrance so that Christians couldn't go in and go to church. So the Christians there, there are a lot of beatings of the pastors. Uh, they're paying a tremendous uh, price for their faith, but they are persevering and they are continuing to do the work of evangelism and disciple making. So it's pretty exciting. Um, we're doing there. We're going to Nepal. 
Uh, we're spending a lot of time, again, with pastors in outlying areas who don't have any training whatsoever, and we're sharing uh, training of, of theology, uh, hermeneutics, which is how do you study the Bible for yourself, homiletics, which is how do you prepare a message from God's Word, uh, and so we're enjoying that, and then we're going to uh, Ethiopia as well. So those are, that's what we're doing. We're kind of spending time in different countries as opposed to all of our time in one country. And then when we're here, uh, God has given us a ministry of counseling and also uh, teaching. We do uh, marriage workshops, parenting workshops, and, and uh, so we're keeping busy for his kingdom and enjoying it and being uncomfortable all the time. So... <laughs> Uh, yes. A Wednesday. Yeah. So uh, we're heading up for Hong Kong. We'll be there for the month of July. And then August will be in um, Nepal. And then September in Sri Lanka. And then October in Ethiopia. So that's the plan right now, Lord willing. So we love what we do. We are enjoying this ministry. Well, I, uh, I have to congratulate Chris. He gives me the cherry passage of all cherry passages. I mean, if I were pastoring, I would have never surrendered this passage to anyone. So Chris is a much more gracious Christian than I am. I have to, I have to say that. We are in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 35. Just by way of introduction, I want to share a couple of things with you. As, as I've traveled around the world, it's given me a different perspective on the American church. And one of the great blind spots I see of the American church, not you guys, but just the church in general, is they're tending to focus on the sins of others, you know, like abortion or homosexuality or uh, adultery or all of these no-nos that people in the world do quite frequently, but they completely miss the heart of Jesus, which is a passion for the church and for families and for Christian friendships to live in absolute unity, in passionate giving love for each other and serving each other with everything and all of the resources that God has given them. That's basically what Matthew 18 has been about so far. It's about relationships in the kingdom of heaven between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And if, as you look at this, he's been shifting his focus away from the presentation of himself as Messiah to Israel, and he's been more about preparing the disciples for this period of time when this new community of the king called the church is going to be going against the gates of hell. And he says the gates of hell are not going to be able to defend themselves against the ongoing march of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the interesting things about this is he comes and he says two things. Last week, you guys heard him talk about we need to tell the truth to each other. If you have offended me, uh, if you have wounded me, if you have in some way sinned against me, it's not optional. I have to tell you the truth in love. I have to go to you and I have to come to you and say, you know what, uh, this is hard for me to say, but, but you've sinned against me, you've wounded me, and I needed you to know that. And the reason I need to do that is because we need to be reconciled. And so Jesus goes through a whole process and this whole principle of reconciliation is so important that he says if a, a person refuses to do that, they need to be put out from the church. They need to be uh, temporarily taken out of the church fellowship because this lack of unity is like a cancer that will infect the church and destroy the whole fabric of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's listening to all of this. And he says, hmm. So I confront the person and they repent. Ugh. That means I have to forgive him. And before we do that, I forgot. There's one, I just want to cover a couple of things. The, the meaning of forgiveness. There are actually two key words for forgiveness. Um, one is 
charizomai. I didn't quite know how to spell it with English letters, but that's close enough. And if you notice, the first letter is X-A-R-I. If you add an S, charis, that's grace. And so what, uh, what the Greek word is really helping us to understand is that forgiveness is first and foremost an act of grace. Uh, people will say, oh, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. That's the whole point of forgiveness, okay? You, you don't wait until they deserve to be forgiven, forgiven because if you do, you're not forgiving them anymore. They've sort of worked their way out of the hole. It's like the wife will say, hey, if you'll do the dishes for the week and take care of the kids for two weeks, well, then maybe I'll consider forgiving you. No, you're working at a negotiation. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. So charizomai lets us know that this is about grace. Then, the next one, aphemi, this is what Jesus uses here in Matthew. This word literally means to send away. I love the picture of this, or to remove. You are, you are and, and here the focus is on the person who is being forgiven. My debt is being canceled. My, my sin is being removed or sent away. And whereas before we were in this kind of a relationship where you were able to hold this over my head, you are bringing us back to ground zero where we are together. The importance of you, this, you guys, is not only is Jesus entered, interested in forgiveness, but Satan is very interested in forgiveness. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's a really odd passage of scripture that gives us an indication of how important this issue of forgiveness is to Satan. Now, the, the uh, context of this, I think you guys know in 1 Corinthians, uh, there was this guy who was doing really weird stuff. In fact, he was living with his stepmother, okay? And Paul is going, yikes, even non-Christians don't do this stuff. And so the, the Corinthians were being all arrogant about this. They were saying, oh... You know, we're all Christians, we're all forgiven, well, let's, let's not worry about this, you know, who am I to judge? And Paul says, hey, I've judged the guy, you need to remove him from the church. Not only for his sin, but for the fact that he's not willing to repent. See, that's the key about when removal has to happen. It's not the horror, horror of the sin, it's the refusal of repentance. Well, now Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and the guy has repented. This is so cool. Church discipline has done what it's supposed to do. So now Paul says in verse 7, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. So th this guy had repented, but the Corinthians were saying, oh, no, you've got to earn your way back. You know, we're not going to let you back in the church. Forgive him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you're in obedience in all things. But whom you forgive... I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I have done it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now, verse 11, look at this. In order that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes or his strategies. That's what Paul is talking about. So Satan is, here we are in this situation. Jesus has a will and a plan for this relationship, for them to be restored, for forgiveness to be granted, or for them to come back in unity. Satan has a plan for them not to forgive, for division to occur, and for a, a relationship to be broken. That is Satan's passionate plan. Ephesians 4, 25 and 26 talks about the fact that we should not allow our anger to result in angry words or actions. We should not let the sun go down in our anger. In other words, we should not hold on to grudges. And once again, Paul says, so that no foothold will be given to Satan. And what he's saying is when anger is in the home, we actually give Satan a foothold to bring his will to pass in this whole situation. So now let's go to Matthew 18, 21. Peter asked a question, and if, you'll, if you've been reading Matthew lately, you've noticed that Peter has taken a very prominent position among the apostles in these last few chapters. 
14, it was Peter who said, hey, Lord, if it's you, and I know it is, by the way, command me to come out in the boat. In 16, it's Peter who says, hey, uh, I know that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter has been the spokesman. He's been speaking up for the disciples. But in both of those times, Peter gets the right answer, and yet he still needs correction from Jesus. It's interesting. He kind of does something pretty good, but then Jesus says, you got a little bit of it, Peter, but we've got to finish the work in you. And what's so cool, it's almost as if Jesus knew that there were going to be people who would try to turn Peter into something that he isn't. He's the Pope. He's the guy, he's the guy who can speak without fault, without any problem. And all along in Matthew, we're just seeing Peter open mouth and insert foot. And so it's awesome to see that the apostles and Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, is presenting Peter as a great leader, but as a flawed great leader. He's human. He makes mistakes, and we see that all through the book of Acts as well. So Peter's looking at this whole issue. If your brother repents, uh, okay, you've won him back. And Peter is thinking, oh, that implies that I have to forgive this guy. So once again, Peter is like this first grade student. Oh, oh, I have a question. I think I know the right answer. Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? And Luke brings up an interesting point. He brings up that really what's being talked about is forget this guy, forgive this guy for the same offense. How many times do I have to do this? And Peter is just thinking, I have an answer that's going to blow Christ away. Seven times? Should I, oh man, Jesus, you know the rabbis only say I have to do it three times. I'm doubling down on that. Do I, do I have to forgive them up to seven times? And what's implied in that whole question, Peter gets it right that we do need to be forgiving each other, but what he gets wrong is that there needs to be a lid on our forgiveness. There's, there's a point at which we don't have to forgive anymore because they've blown it. By the way, do you know why we have to keep forgiving people for the same sin? The answer is very simple. We are not very creative sinners. <laughs> have you guys figured that one out? That Do you know yourself well enough to know that you have a kind of a weakness in your personality? That when you sin, it will probably be in a specific area. You know, for example, uh, if I sin... Well, I'm not going to go into that, but... Uh, <laughs> But there are probably four things that Connie has forgiven me 70 times 7, and then she had to start counting again. All right, Because, you know, honestly, you guys, I'm going to brag a little bit. I've never come home drunk in all our marriage. You, every, after the service, everybody should pat me on the back for that, you know. You could, you could put a pile of cocaine that high in front of me, and I would resist all temptation to snort it down. And the point is, just the way I'm wired, that stuff doesn't really appeal to me. Now, you get me in front of Netflix on a good TV show, you'll see, boy, I can binge watch with the best of them. So I have different things that I do for my sin. But I tend to focus on specific areas of sin just because of the way I'm wired. So Connie does, oh, you got drunk last week, and, and this week you uh, rammed into three people with a car in your anger, and next week you did this. And, you know, she doesn't have 10,000 sins that she has to forgive me for. She has about three or four that she has to keep forgiving me over and over and over again. I learned one thing when you ask forgiveness, by the way. Never say... I'll never do that again. All right? Never say that. Because you know you will. Even though you might, if you want to, you can say, I wish I would never do that again, or I hope I'll never do that. But the fact of the matter is, probably when you sin, it's going to be in one of those key weakness areas of your life. So Jesus' response to Peter is really interesting. He says, not seven times. And different people have translated this phrase. Some have said it's 77 times. Some people have said it's 70 times 7. I tend to think it's the second one. And the point is, Jesus is saying, stop counting. 
stop counting. The issue is not, oh, 489. Oh, I only have to do it one more time. See, if you've kept count, you probably haven't really been forgiving very well. And the point is, our forgiveness of each other is to be as lavish and generous as God's forgiveness of us is. And now Jesus is going to tell a story uh, to help us understand this. Now we're in verse 23. We're going to read the parable of forgiveness. This is so clear and so stunning and so, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, concerning to me as I look at this. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and all that he had in repayment to be made. So let me just set the stage. Let's look at 10,000 talents. Um, to give you an idea of how much 10,000 talents is, in four of the regions of Galilee, or of, of Israel, that was uh, Judea, Idumea, Syria, and there was one other, all four of them together, the total taxes that they collected was 600 talents in one year. So 10,000 talents, it, the word is myriad. So when you think of myriad, it, it does technically mean 10,000. But the whole point of this is a whole bunch of money. So let's say my debt were $10 billion. It could be 10 billion. It could be 100 billion. It could be a trillion. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to pay that back. Does that, do you get the point? Okay, so it, it's like when you're little kids, how much is this worth? It's worth a billion, billion dollars, you know. That, that's kind of what the debt is. That this man had a debt that he owed the king that there was no way he could repay it back in a thousand lifetimes. So this guy's standing before the king. Before the king wanted to settle accounts, this guy was running through life really fun. Everything was great. But now that he's getting his account settled, this guy has been called to account. And he realizes, I have no hope. So let's go on to verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, he commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So basically what they do is they put you in prison until your family and friends can give you enough money, because you can't earn any money in prison. But you're there until your family and friends can raise enough money to pay back the debt. So this man had absolutely no hope. He goes on. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you any, everything. Now, does this seem stupid to you? I mean... Hey, I owe you $10 billion. Just be a little patient. I can get it by next Friday. Okay. The guy's saying this, but he's being ridiculous. There's no chance that he can repay anything. Verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Whatever this guy was expecting from this king, this was not it. He walked in owing a debt of $10 billion that was as heavy on him that he, could, he couldn't even walk. He was looking at the rest of his life in prison with his wife in prison, his children in prison with him. He has no hope. And in one word, the king releases him from his whole debt. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in debt. I have. And I hate that feeling. When I was young, I uh, was not too smart financially. And I looked at the credit card and I got, this is awesome. I can pay for this with this little stupid credit card and I can get whatever I want. And so I got Connie and I into debt. And 
uh, I went to my dad, who's a very wise man, and I said, Dad, uh, I got us into debt. If, if you'll get me out of debt, I promise I'll never get into debt again. And my dad looked at me and he lovingly said, not a chance. He said, you got yourself into debt, you get yourself out of debt. And I was so angry with him, but he actually had different things in mind than this king did. He actually wanted me to learn not to get in debt. And the only way I was going to learn not to get into debt was to have the pain of trying to figure out how to get out of debt. And so it took us two years to get out of that debt. And, and my dad's lesson was paid. But the point I want to make is being in debt is a terrible thing. It just weighs, it, it colors everything you do in life. And this man has just immediately been released from his debt. Let me just throw this out at you. If, if this happened to you, you were horribly in debt and you were going to have to declare bankruptcy, you were going to lose everything, and all of a sudden the people you owed decided to release you from that debt 100%, what would your reaction be? Wow! Thank you, King! Is there anything I can do for you, by the way? Do you want me to shine your crown? Do you want me to, you know, I'll do anything you want. And you would expect this guy would have just gone running out of the king's presence. The king has forgiven my debt. The king has forgiven my debt. I am free from my debt. I am forgiven. This is amazing. I mean, to me, that would be the normal reaction of something like that happening. By the way, you all know that something like that has happened to you, right? That you'd owed a debt to God that you could not pay. You could spend a million years suffering in hell, and that wouldn't even be a down payment on the debt you owed to God. And so Jesus came, and he said, I'll pay that debt. I will take all of the wrath and judgment that God my Father can pour out against you and I will allow him to pour that out against me. And so a debt you could never pay has been forgiven. We are free, you guys. We are free. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been given eternal life. We're now children of God. We're sons of the King. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have a hope, a future. Everything has been changed because of what Jesus has done for you. So this guy has an interesting reaction. Let's read on. Verse 28. First thing this slave does. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, let's just look at a hundred denarii. This is a significant amount of money, especially if you're a slave, okay? It was about three and a half months of daily wages. So it's, this is an important amount of money, but compared to the 10,000 talents, this is like it doesn't even qualify as a drop in the bucket. But this guy goes and finds his buddy who owns him 100 denarii and he seized him and began to choke him. So this guy is furious with the guy who owes him 100 denarii and he starts choking him. Give me my money. And the guy falls down at his feet. Interestingly enough, he says exactly to this man what this man said to the king. He said, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went out and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their lord, the king, all that had happened. Then summoning him, their lord said to him, You wicked slave. He looked at this man and he said, you have shown me wickedness that I can't even believe. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy with you? 
And his Lord moved with anger. He was infuriated with this man, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So this man forfeited the forgiveness that the king had given to him because he was unwilling to forgive this other person who owed him. You guys all know the key to interpreting parables is not to interpret every little detail of the parable, right? There's a point that Jesus is trying to make. For example, in Luke 18, when he gives the parable of the unrighteous judge and the woman who gets what she wants by bugging him to death, uh, Jesus is not trying to teach us that God the Father is some unrighteous judge who doesn't want to answer our prayers. That's not the point. The point is we should keep praying and never quit. Here, the point is so ridiculously clear that God is going to treat you as you treat others. This is the consistent teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus says this to uh, everybody who's listening. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, when you go to God and you're praying, uh, God, would you forgive me in the same way that I've forgiven Suzanne and Bill and Fred and everybody else who's done things against me? I want you to actually condition your forgiveness of me on my forgiveness of them. That's what you're praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer. If, he, if there's any doubt as to what Jesus is saying, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Back to this story, we go to the end of the parable. When the parable is over, in verse 35, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from the heart. How many times? Up to seven times? No. How many times does the Father forgive you? Up to seven times? No. Seventy times seven. So we have kind of a simple message here. This is not complicated. But I want to begin to apply it to our lives now. And I want to talk a little bit about how do we actually make this amazing truth, this principle, real in our lives. Before I say this, I want to say one thing. I, again, it's important to realize that this is teaching one huge point. I want you to know that this is not teaching that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you don't forgive someone, you will lose your salvation. I think the Bible is eminently clear that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But let me flip that coin over and look at the other side. If you have experienced this kind of mercy and grace, what are you going to do in your life as a result of that? You know, I've seen all my life, wounded people wound. Have you seen that? People who are, who are wounded, what do they usually do is they lash out and they wound other people. Angry people, everything they do grows out of anger. But forgiven people, forgive. Loved people love. People who have been shown mercy show mercy to others. And one of the consistent teaching of Scripture all through is not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is really a Christian. Jesus said, there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, we did a lot of things for you. And Jesus says, hey, I never knew you guys. So what do we do? How do we begin to work this in our lives? Uh, 
the first thing I want you to understand and to take note of, if you want to become a, a person for whom forgiveness is actually, I'm not going to say easy, but I'm going to say easier. Become a person who is overwhelmed with the mercy that you've received from God. You know when you, you first become a Christian, how excited that you are about all of that? I've been forgiven. I'm free. I'm a child of God. I can walk into the presence of God at any time. I have the word of God to guide me and the spirit of God to empower me. This is amazing. And then a few years later, it's like, God, I'm struggling financially. Where are you? And we're, we become kind of like the children of Israel. Oh, did you bring us out to the desert to kill us? And we're just kind of belly aching and whining and complaining against God. And we've forgotten everything that he's done for us. So, I want to encourage you. Ephesians 1 through 3, 3 through 14. You know what that is? That is a one sentence. That whole section is one sentence. Which tells you how excited Paul is. And it's a one-sentence explosion of praise to God for everything that he's done for us. Paul starts off and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on and he lists all of these amazing blessings that God has done. Now I'm going to step on toes, and I'm sorry, actually I'm not, but uh, you know... Uh, one of the things that drives me crazy at churches is Thanksgiving. You know, we'll always have testimonies of Thanksgiving. And, and people will get up and they're very sincere. In fact, they often cry and they say, I thank God for my family. I thank God for my home. I thank God for my job. I thank God for my kids. And that's nice. I'm glad you thank God for those things. But I'm sad that you aren't exploding with, I thank God for the forgiveness of sins. I thank God that he sent his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins, to remove the penalty for my sins and to bring me back into relationship with God. I thank God for the Holy Spirit that he's given me who empowers me to live as he wants me to live. I thank God for the word of God that guides me, that is a light to show me the way. I thank God for the family of God that is my eternal family. I thank God for the fact that Jesus is coming again and I have a hope. I thank God that Jesus right now is preparing a home for me in heaven where I'm going to live with him forever. See, all of the other things that you're thanking God for can be taken away, right? I thank God for my home. Well, what are you going to thank him for if you lose your home? Because I've had several friends who have lost their homes. I, I talked to one couple about a year ago, and, and she, she said, yeah, we, had to, we didn't have any money. We lost our home. And I immediately started saying, I'm sorry. And she said, don't. Because we have been rejoicing in Jesus Christ more in the last year since we lost everything than we have all the years before having all of this stuff of this world. When God took all of that stuff away, we realized how precious Jesus Christ was to us. And we are happier now than we've ever been in our lives. Isn't that amazing? See, this Jesus stuff actually works. It's kind of cool. And so what I'm suggesting to you is the first step is to take your mind off of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and put it back on to what Jesus has done for you what God through Christ has done for you. And just start rejoicing in that on a day-by-day -day basis. Thank God. And shout in your thanks to God. Don't just, oh, thank God for my salvation. We are, we are so squeamish about unleashing, aren't we? But I mean, it really feels good to say thank you. I remember when I was in the ninth grade, I, have my, I still have my prayer list from the ninth grade. When God answers a prayer, I'd keep remembrances of what God did. And about every other page, I'm writing down the margin, God, you are so awesome! You know, I was just exploding because 
I was seeing God answer prayers left and right all over the place. And you know why I was seeing it? Because I was writing it down and remembering when he actually did it. That's a great reason why you should write down your prayer request, by the way. But what I'm suggesting is memorize this. It's 11 verses. I know. It'll take me two weeks to memorize this. So, in two weeks, you'll have memorized one of the greatest sections of Scripture that is in the New Testament. And you will be blown away with how your heart is just lifted up to heaven with all God has done for you. You guys, thankful people are forgiving people. Do you know that? Thankful people cannot not forgive. I know that's a double negative, but you get the point, right? Okay, that's principle number one. When you are wronged, principle number two, and I need to put something in before from last week. Confront the person, right? Don't just do all of this by yourself. If somebody has seriously wronged you, go to that person and point out their fault. Let them know that. And we're not supposed to judge. No, you're supposed to judge yourself first, and then you exercise discernment with the other person. So you go to that person and say, you know what, you've really wounded me. And my guess is if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you do it with the spirit of gentleness and not arrogance, they're probably going to, I am so sorry, I, will you forgive me? And then you make the decision to forgive quickly. Now, very important to understand. America believes that what you feel is who you are, Right? Follow your heart. You know, the, every Disney thing. You know, you can summarize all of Disney's philosophy. Believe in yourself and follow your heart. Two principles from the pit of hell. Okay? Your emotions are not who you are. So don't wait until you feel like forgiving to forgive. Forgiveness is a decision, not a feeling. You know what Satan does? He says if you Forgive when you don't feel like it. You're being a hypocrite. No, you're being a faithful believer. Okay? Now, what is, it, what is the decision of forgiveness? The decision of forgiveness is I am removing this offense from you. I am making the choice never to bring it up again. Which means if they sin again in that same area, you can't say, oh, you did it again, because you removed that first one from them. So you can still go back and say, you knucklehead, you did it, but you just can't use the word again. So you forgive them, make that decision, and the motive, consistently through Scripture, whoever has a complaint against anyone, Colossians 3 says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And I've... When I'm doing counseling, I encourage people to build that into their vocabulary. I forgive you because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Tell the person that. Make that a praise and a testimony. Hey, God has, forgive, God has removed 10,000 talents from my bill. I think I can remove 100 denarii from your bill. So you forgive just as Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Okay, so let's go on. I think we have, do we have Colossians up there? Nope, we don't. Okay. So, uh, let's go on to the next one now. Forgiveness is step one of your battle of reconciliation. Because when you're forgiven, you're still mad, aren't you? And it's kind of like, I forgive you. <laughs> you, know, and you're, you know, if they've really wounded you, Forgiveness doesn't necessarily take away the wound. I have a, a stupid illustration that I use all the time. Uh, let's say I walk up to Steve and I have a 45 automatic in my pocket. I pull it out and I shoot him in the shoulder. Right. Now, if you've ever been shot with a 45, you know that would hurt. And, and the minute I do that, I say, oh, Steve, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. That's one of those lies we always tell each other. I didn't. Yes, you did. Yeah. I wouldn't have pulled it out and shot you if I didn't mean to, but we say that to make ourselves feel it. But anyway, Steve, I sinned against you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And Steve's, yeah, I forgive you. Yeah. Uh, now, he's forgiven me, 
What's happened to his shoulder? Absolutely nothing. It's still wounded. So if I go up the next day and I slap Steve on the shoulder and say, how are you doing? Ow! What are you doing to me? You see, emotional scars aren't that dramatic, are they? But they're just as painful and just as deep. So, if you're the one asking forgiveness, don't expect them to get over it, quote-unquote, right away and be, you know, I, I, do we have adults in the room? Okay, good. You know, when, when Connie and I would get angry and we'd, you know, get back together, I always wanted to have intimate relationships with her right away. And she would push me away and say, get out of here. And I'd say, but didn't you forgive me? Yes, but that doesn't feel, mean I feel real loved at this whole point in time. And I had to learn, it takes time, even though she's forgiven me, it takes time for her to heal. And so quit re-wounding the spot where you've hurt them. That make sense? Now, for you who are the forgiver, realize that you're still wounded. How do you heal emotional wounds? Paul gives us the key in Ephesians 4, 20, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Literally, that means let it go. And again, America has this crazy belief, I have no control over your, my emotions. What I feel is what I feel, and I can't do anything about it. I'm angry, I can't do anything about it. Yes, you can. Because what you think about determines what you feel. So, if I keep reliving the offense over and over and over again, guess what's going to happen to my feelings? They're going to get deeper and deeper and more entrenched in my life. And this was a great revelation for me. Early in our marriage, I held some things against Connie, and I would say, I forgive you. And then I would sort of relive that and get all angry again and say, you know, we need to talk about this again. I, I don't think I really forgave you. So I'd bring it up and slap her with her own mud again. And, oh, I got to And I, I was feeling so righteous as I did this, you know. And I realized that after I say I forgive her, if I bring it up again, we're not dealing with her sin anymore. Now we're dealing with my sin. Does that make sense? And so that changed my whole paradigm of how I approach this. Oh, God, forgive me for giving room for this offense in my mind. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I reject that thought. And you guys, when I turned the focus from her sin to my sin, healing began. In fact, it went actually pretty quickly. The anger just started to dissipate. So we have to release this. We have to let go of it. We have to stop stoking the fires of anger and resentment and malice and all of those things. And if you stop stoking the fire, eventually it's going to calm down and go out. Not immediately, but eventually. Chris, what time do we need to be through, by the way? Yeah, three minutes. Oh, oh. <laughs> should have told me that three minutes ago. All right, let's go to the next one. See, I'm going to have to forgive you for this. All right. <laughs> This is the last warning that I want to share with you guys, and this is really important. The danger of a lack of forgiveness is a root of bitterness. Over the years, and I have done counseling with people for 40 years now, and I've seen people in depression for 5, 10, 15 years, and as we traced it back, it started with a lack of forgiveness. Um, I'm not saying if you're depressed, it means you haven't forgiven somebody. I'm just saying this is one of the causes for depression. Is that if you don't forgive, and let me explain how this works. 
If you refuse to show the grace and mercy of God to others, God will stop pouring out his grace and mercy to you. You'll be on your own. And I've seen people walking in the Christian life on their own power for five, ten years, and it's, it's such a burden, they finally give up and fall into depression or they fall into bitterness. Here's what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. I want to unpack that real, real quick for you. In every situation you face, especially woundings and difficult situations, God wants to pour out his grace to give you the ability to overcome that and to live righteously with joy. But we can refuse his grace in our lives. We can say, I'll handle this on my own, or I don't really want to obey you, so obviously I'm not going to use your grace now. So see that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. The principle of Scripture is that if you don't use the grace of God to overcome these difficult relationships, there's a little root of bitterness that gets planted. By the way, I'm not a good gardener. I like to let weeds grow until they're huge, and then I try to root them. And have you ever seen what a, what a plant does when you leave it in the ground, how the roots spread out? And now you're trying to uproot this, and you're tearing your grass all apart because of the roots of this weed? You guys, roots are easier to pull when you do them quickly. And I want you to know if there is someone in your past that you haven't forgiven. It could be a parent. It could be a child. It could be a husband, a wife. It could be a, a person from another church that you've stopped going to. If there's someone in your past you haven't forgiven, that is standing like a dam holding back the river of God in your life. And I want to call on you in the name of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not an option. It may feel like you can't do this, but Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And if you want to know if God wants you to forgive, I can answer that pretty definitively for you. Yes. So, Father, I just pray that as we move forward in our lives that you would excite us about extending your mercy and your grace and your love and your patience to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.